At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Hello, and welcome back to ACRAC. I'm Jed Wolpaw, and I am excited for this show today. In many ways, this is a unique ACRAC podcast, and you'll know why in a second. I have with me a really fantastic guest, Dr. Phil Carullo, who is one of our pediatric anesthesiologists here. And interestingly enough, though, I would love to have him back another day to talk about a topic in pediatric anesthesia that is not really what we're going to talk about today, because Phil has taken a real interest in, believe it or not, tape. That's right, tape. And we are going to talk today about tape. Now, before you turn off your radio, and I know you're not listening on a radio, we are going to convince you that this is actually a fascinating topic and that Phil has taken interest in it for a good reason. So, Phil, welcome to the show. Thank you, Jed. I really appreciate it. Um, I started listening to ACRAC when I was a resident and continued as a fellow and still listen now. So it's really fun to be here. Uh, I really feel uh, honored to be part of the uh, ACRAC uh, podcast crew. So, um, and, and to talk about tape, which is a really, uh, interesting and uh, fun topic. Uh, yeah. so <laughs> I'll start off by just a full disclosure. I get this question a lot. I have no actual per- personal or professional interests in, uh, in tape technology or development or research, but I really like to talk about tape for two main reasons. One, it's just a really fun topic. It's something that a lot of people in healthcare interact with on a regular basis, we use tape every single day and multiple types of tape on a daily basis. And I found that it doesn't matter if you're a CA1 or a seasoned attending. We know how to use it, but we really don't know much else about it. And so really understanding the risks and benefits of tape and the evidence behind the best way to use it clinically is often not there. And this in many ways is probably the only education you'll ever get on this topic. So it's fun from that standpoint. And it's... (laughs) The second reason why I really like to talk about tape is that it allows me to discuss a research interest of mine, which is actually physician innovation of medical technology. And so I believe that as physicians, we should be at least contributing to the ideas that help uh, perioperative technology evolve and rely on engineers, lawyers, and business folks uh, to really help us both design, protect, and manufacture technology in the perioperative setting. So Part of my research, I enjoy actually participating in the development of technology, but I also really like educating uh, trainees and young physicians on uh, a process by which to generate an idea for a device and then actually map out what it would look like to get that to clinical practice. And so part of building that skill set to be a physician innovator is learning how to evaluate existing technology and understanding the clinical and financial implications that that technology has on the healthcare industry and on patient outcomes and understand not only the financial and clinical impacts, but understanding who generates that technology, who manufactures, what's the pathway from getting it from the bench to clinical practice. And so for this discussion, I use tape 
as kind of an example of how to evaluate a medical technology. And so the first part of this talk is really a business understanding or discussion on tape. And then the second part is kind of the fun uh, clinical discussion on tape science and best practices on how to use it. Awesome. I'm really looking forward to this. Now, just out of curiosity, though, like, did you one day, you know, as a trainee, you were like using tape as we all do, as you said, I mean, it's probably the thing we use more than anything else. And you thought, hey, I should look into like, what was the origin story? When did you what what moment did you say, I'm gonna, I'm gonna get into tape? Okay, so when I was a fellow at uh, University of Pittsburgh, so Children's Hospital of uh, Pittsburgh, we were tasked with giving a grand rounds. Mine happened to fall in uh, May of 2020 when COVID hit. And so I really didn't want to drain people by talking about something heavy. And so I was looking for a fun topic. And I thought about tape because it's kind of a side joke. We have this attending there who uh, he is just an amazing like tape artist. I mean, he'll cover... 90% of a patient's face in tape when he takes the tube. And it's like really comical, but, and, and when you work with him, you know, you better cut like six pieces of tape and tape it this way and hang it on the IV bag. Uh, but he really got me thinking even before this discussion about that there's really an art form to how we use tape and that you can write a whole review article and kind of uh, this stuff. And so I wanted to talk about tape uh, partially motivated by my experiences with that individual. Nice. Love it. Um, okay. So let's jump in. As you said, kind of first thinking about tape as a medical device and, and what can we learn from that? Yeah, great. So uh, if you have any interest in uh, innovation, you really need to start changing the lens in which you view medicine, kind of be able to bounce between being an entrepreneur or an innovator and being a clinician. And so uh, if we zoom out and look at tape from a bird's eye view, uh, we can kind of start, you know, doing this market analysis and really understanding it more as a device. And so tape, not a surprise, widely accepted medical device, almost ubiquitous in all uh, clinical practices. And if you look at the most recent data, tape generated about $14 billion a year in revenue this past year. And it's rapidly growing market. So by 2030, it's expected to grow to about $30 billion, which to put in perspective is about how much revenue Starbucks makes throughout uh, it's global enterprise each year. So it's a huge market. And if you look at kind of uh, as medical tape as an umbrella market, there are different subsections of tape uh, that, that's growing faster than others. And really, the main area that's innovating right now are tape products that are used to secure IV lines. And so I even know on PEDS, we have specialized tegaderms that have little teddy bear tape on it. And, you know, when you're doing central lines, it's almost on a regular basis, you see a new line to secure the uh, central line. So this area of the medical adhesive market is kind of growing the fastest. So it kind of helps you know where, you know, innovation is really taking place. Now, North America accounts for the largest kind of share of consumption of medical adhesives, but countries like India and China are also big contributors. And if you look at who actually is manufacturing and selling uh, medical adhesive products, it really falls into three main players. And these players are 3M, Cardinal Health, and Johnson & Johnson. And again, it's good just to step back and do a little bit of research into these uh, key players to understand, you know, within their portfolio of products they sell, how important are adhesives to them. And this is just valuable if you have an idea for an adhesive. You want to find a partner that's going to help you and believes in the product. And so we'll start with the biggest manufacturer, which is 3M. And they have a subsection of their company that's dedicated to healthcare. It's called 3M Healthcare. It's based out of uh, Minneapolis or out of Minnesota. 
and their portfolio includes all almost all the tape products we use on a regular basis, including Tigaderms, but they also make the Lipman stethoscopes, dental supplies, veterinary products. And then there's Cardinal Health. And Cardinal Health has a pretty wide range of products in their portfolio. They make some adhesives, but uh, really, you'll notice a lot of the things that they create. They um, manufacture endotracheal tubes, all the sterile gloves we use in the operating room, anesthesia circuits, Andrew bags, yank collars, suctions, alcohol swabs, really everything. Uh, they also make the green handles, uh, disposable handles for the OR surgical lights. Uh, so they have a really diverse portfolio, and they like to absorb smaller companies under the umbrella of Cardinal Health. And then lastly, there's Johnson & Johnson, the other big manufacturer. This is a huge medical company based out of New Jersey. Their main adhesive they produce is Dermabond, but they also make cautery, all of the laparoscopic uh, equipment, sutures, surgery foam, and so on. So again, very large, diverse portfolio. And so really it's 3M that uh, is uh, kind of mostly focused on adhesives uh, in the world. So when we talk about um, who's manufacturing the, the technology, it's also good to look at you know who is inventing this stuff because you don't have to be the inventor of a piece of technology in order to manufacture and sell it and so i really like to teach this concept uh to um physician innovators that we're trained from an early age to learn how to do a medical literature review you can take almost any topic and use PubMed in a short period of time be able to say you know what i can now answer my clinical question or i really feel like i can target my research now to something that is meaningful and helps, you know, answer questions that we still don't have answers to. But you can also do a technology literature review. You can use a search engine or a patent search engine and google.com slash patents is one of the largest and it's also free. And you can use keywords like, for example, if you want to know, do wireless EKGs exist or what about a combined echo and EGD probe? You know, I have an idea for those kind of things. And you can use these keywords, type it into google.com slash patents, and you're going to get a bunch of hits. And these hits are equivalent to like primary medical literature. These hits are actually direct links to patent applications that are registered with the United States Patent and Trademark Office. And so you can click on these and look at both drawings of the actual products and descriptions of how they're intended to be used. You can look and see who owns it, who invented it when it was filed. And so learning how to do a technology literature review is super helpful for you to understand both if you have an idea for a piece of technology, what currently exists. And also if you wanna know who's making something, you can get that information by doing a literature review. So if you type in medical adhesive tape into google.com slash patents, you'll see there are over 50,000 patents related to medical adhesives. And you can play around with filters. And what you'll find is that 80% of the intellectual property around medical adhesives belong to 3M. And you can also filter by not only who owns it, but who invented it. Individuals often invent the technology that companies own. And about half of 3M's patents are invented by one of their corporate scientists, Matt Schultz. He's like the tape guru. I don't know if he gets any extra bonus for the things he creates, but, you know, he's hired by them and I'm sure they have a good, healthy financial relationship. And so kind of zooming out with our little market analysis, we can kind of summarize and say medical tape is a widely accepted and utilized device. And it has a pretty large financial impact in the healthcare industry. It's 
developed and invented by a concentrated group of companies and individuals. And you'll find that this is pretty standard for most medical devices. It's really concentrated group of companies and people that develop it. And based off of who owns the property, 3M is a global leader in terms of revenue and intellectual property rights. And they drive a lot of the science behind tape and education uh, related to complications from tape use. So that's kind of a bird's eye view of, of tape. And then that kind of leads us into discussion of like what exactly tape is and what kind of testing does it undergo before reaching your anesthesia machine. Awesome. So, you know, I, first of all, this guy, uh, what, what did you say? That was Matt Schultz. I mean, you know, how interesting you said 50 or something, Pat. I mean, you know, the, the number of, uh, kind of variations of tape, it's so interesting. And I wonder, I mean, maybe you'll tell us some, or just be interesting to think about kind of what, what differs often I think tape, I think tape is tape. It sticks. It might be a different color, right. But it's clearly, there are very different kinds. Um, and it's interesting to imagine this guy kind of sitting at his lab desk, uh, making variations of tape and, uh, working for, for 3M really, really interesting. Okay. So, um, but if we think now about, uh, the actual application of tape, um, and, um, you know, how we use it, uh, tell us more about that. Yeah. So, uh, so let's say now you're in a lab and you created a roll of tape. And in fact, your name is Dr. Matthew Schultz and you created a bunch of tape. And now you're like, okay, I have this tape and I want to start selling it in the United States. So the FDA regulates all medical devices that are both uh, used on patients and sold uh, for use on patients in the United States. And so whenever you're thinking about selling something, uh, you need to get uh, approval through them. And uh, a lot of times you're filling out an application uh, for your device to be approved. And so the FDA has a definition for tape. And so anything that falls under this definition is categorized them to them as tape. So uh, medical tape is defined as consisting of a strip of fabric or plastic material that's coated on one side with an adhesive, and then it's used to secure objects to the skin. And so that's a definition of tape. <clears throat> now, in general, uh, devices can be one of three classes, class one, two, or three. And they're categorized based off of how critical they are for sustaining life. So a class one device is what tape would be considered or a piece of gauze or an oral airway or an oxygen mask. And these devices are valuable for patient care, but their failure wouldn't necessarily result in significant harm to a patient. Whereas a class three device like an ECMO machine or a ventilator, defibrillator, these things are critical for sustaining life. And so to get these devices through the FDA, you really have to submit to them a lot of safety and efficacy data uh, to ensure that safe for patient use. So now that we've defined tape as a strip of fabric with an adhesive, we can really define the anatomy of tape. And tape is really composed of two layers. One is the backing. And the backing is what we call the tape. Hey, I need some paper tape for the eyes or I need some silk tape, or we like to use cloth tape in the ICU. And so that is the backing. That's what we know the tape as. And then the second layer is the adhesive. This is kind of what's layered onto the backing. It's the sticky stuff. It's what helps it form a bond. And there are all different types of adhesives, but in the medical world, almost all of it is acrylate. It's acrylate adhesive. So it's the same, whether you're talking about tegaderms, iobans, stereostrips, dermabond, the adhesive is all the same. It's acrylate. And so that's what tape is made of, a backing and an adhesive, and the adhesive is acrylate. And so some general rules about tape is that it's the type of backing and adhesive that determines the property and performance. 
and that almost all medical uh, adhesives are acrylate based. And that when you apply a medical adhesive, after you place it on the skin, you should apply firm pressure to activate the adhesive. And what this does is it basically increases the surface area contact between the adhesive and the skin. And that's important because over time, that acrylate adhesive kind of warms, like it's warmed by the skin and forms a gel and it meshes with the uh, crevices of the epidermal cells and it forms a strong bond over time. And so that's just a little bit about the composition of tape. And just one more thing about the FDA, and then we're essentially almost done here with the, the business part, is that, like I said, the FDA classifies medical devices based off of the, uh, the risk of potential harm uh, to patients. And so uh, tape has a pretty low bar uh, to get through the FDA. In fact, you only really have to show two things for it to be approved for, for use. The first thing you have to show is that it's not cytotoxic. So you take some of the adhesive and backing extracts and you put it in a peachy dish and you just make sure it doesn't cause any harm. And then the second thing you do is skin patch testing. So you bring in healthy subjects and you apply two by two centimeter strips of tape on their skin. You leave it on for a couple of days, bring them back, take it off, and you assess for any signs of skin irritation. And what most companies do now, and especially all of really the medical tape you're going to interact with, they bring those healthy um, subjects back in and they reapply the tape. They do a repeat skin patch testing. And what this shows is that the tape is actually hypoallergenic, meaning the risk of having uh, skin irritation on repeat exposure is super small. And that's why we'll, we'll talk about allergies to taper vanishingly rare. And so um, even though it's pretty low bar to be able to sell tape, you just have to show that doesn't cause uh, cytotoxicity or uh, allergic reactions on the skin, um, 3M is really a leader when it comes to uh, adhesives. And they have not only their healthcare branch, but it's a huge organization and company that makes uh, adhesives for all sorts of things. So my, my most mind-boggling example of some of the adhesives they have, they have skyscrapers in cities that are just all glass buildings. And this glass is not anchored to the steel frame with any uh, bolts or screws. It's just all 3M adhesive. And so you just realize just, wow, you, they're really banked on that working. Uh, and wow. then a more common example is uh, the command strips that we use at home on a regular basis. So there are industry standards, even though it may not be required uh, by the FDA. Uh, and 3M does a good job of publishing this stuff. So if you go on their medical website, they have owner's manuals uh, that basically talk about um, like tape profiling. So you can see how uh, bonds with uh, the skin change over time. And so uh, I'll kind of just go over two of those real quick to uh, illustrate uh, how uh, tape can be used clinically to help you conceptualize it. So <clears throat> when we talked about uh, tape, there being an adhesive and a backing component, and the adhesive is essentially the same uh, for all types of medical tape. So the strength that that tape forms at skin is directly related to the strength of the backing. And so Paper is obviously weaker than plastic, and plastic is weaker than silk. So silk tape forms a way stronger bond with skin than paper tape, and that's because the backing of silk is stronger. And so if you took and plotted paper tape and silk tape on a graph and you looked at how that bond strength changed over time, you would see that there's an initial strength of that bond with the skin, and that paper tape forms a weaker bond than silk tape. But over the next 24 hours, both of those tapes are going to increase linearly. That bond strength is going to increase 
to a pretty significant degree. But after 24 hours, that strength kind of flatlines and actually can decrease over time because for many reasons, but one of them is that the skin sweats and that sweat can kind of deteriorate the uh, acrylate bond and weaken the strength of it. The other kind of thing you'll learn by looking at these tape profiles is that breathable tape, like the cloth tape that's used in the ICU, that the breathable tape can hold uh, bond strengths for a very long time. And that's because the sweat that would normally deteriorate the acrylate uh, can evaporate through the cloth material. And so it doesn't really compromise the bond strength. And so breathable tape can hold its bond for a very, very long time. So that kind of summarizes the business discussion on tape. I'm going to dive in a little bit to some of the, the clinical things here. Okay. So Phil, you mentioned that all the tape is acrylate. Is there any, um, I know silicone tape is another thing. It sounds like that's not used as much medically. Is that something that we might see more of? Is there any advantage to that or no? Stay with us. We'll be right back with Phil's thoughts on silicone tape. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies. We keep moving forward with each new idea, innovation, and partnership. We're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, Visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. All right, and we're back. Here we go to talk about silicone tape. Silicone tape is actually awesome. It's really the only other adhesive you'll see in the, the medical world. Um, but it's way more expensive right now. It's probably about 10 times more expensive for a roll. And silicone tape is special because we talked about uh, acrylate adhesive. It forms a bond strength. And then over the next 24 hours, that bond strength increases. Right? Silicone tape has a pretty stable bond strength. You can put it on and it has an initial bond strength. And then it stays the same bond strength for like days. It doesn't change. And that's kind of a property of the adhesive itself. And there are really good things about that. So if you have really sensitive skin, then you put silicone on there, silicone adhesive, and it forms a bond strength that is generally pretty weak compared to acrylate, but it won't get stronger. And so if you take that tape off in a week, it's less likely to cause skin injury. So it's mostly used for, um, securing the eyes, uh, preventing a corneal abrasion, or after a blood draw, uh, just securing a piece of gauze to the skin for a few minutes. So silicone tape is actually great, but it's not used so much clinically. Uh, and so I didn't really include it in here, but 
uh, keep an eye out for it. And if you see it, just know it doesn't form a super strong bond, but it's very gentle. And so it's a great thing to use uh, when securing just maybe part of an IV uh, uh, line on the arm or closing the eyes shut during the case. Okay, awesome. All right, so let's turn to the tape skin interface and uh, tell me about that. What exactly does the tape do when it hits the skin? Great. So uh, like we said, you know, the adhesive is all the same in the medical world uh, and it's an acrylate adhesive. And when you apply that uh, adhesive to the skin, you should gently uh, push down on that uh, tape and adhesive so that when the skin warms the adhesive, that adhesive can kind of flow into the crevices of the epidermis and form a nice strong bond that will increase over time. Now, the skin itself has several layers, the epidermis, dermis, hypodermis, and the most superficial layer of the epidermis is called the stratum corneum. And it's really important to appreciate that some skin in general is vulnerable to injury because of how the layers of the skin are composed. So classically in pediatric anesthesia, we worry about neonatal skin, but in adult anesthesia, we're worried about the elderly. And their skin tends to be a little bit more vulnerable to injury because they either have less epidermal cells in the stratum corneum, or they don't have as much elasticity or tensile strength in the tissue itself. And the reason why that's important is because if you're using a tape with a strong backing, for example, like silk tape on the eyes, you rarely see people do that, but let's say you did. That silk tape is going to form a pretty strong bond with the skin, maybe actually way more than the strength of paper tape on the eyes. And when you go to remove that tape, it's possible that the tape skin bond is stronger than the skin skin bond. And so instead of removing the adhesive from the skin, you're stripping layers of the epidermis from itself. And so that is, you know, one of the things you have to be careful about when you're using tape is to realize that there are risks associated with it, which kind of leads us to a discussion about uh, tape-related injury. And there's a whole term for this called MARSI, medical adhesive-related skin injury. And this is just a collective way to talk about the different forms of skin damage that can occur from medical adhesives. And so they estimate, this is 3M, that about one in seven patients will uh, experience some sort of skin injury from medical adhesives. And there is a cost associated with this, mostly with just it being evaluated and maybe applying um, a little bit of treatment or ointment to it. Um, and on average, whenever uh, a patient develops a skin injury, it costs about $89 to treat. But the types of skin injuries that we are either responsible for or we'll see on a regular basis are things like skin tearing or skin stripping or the development of a dermatitis, which is commonly thought of as being an allergic reaction to an adhesive. And so we'll just spend a moment kind of talking about each of those because we do have some influence on the development of those things. So the first thing, and which is probably the most common type of injury, which we've all seen before, is skin stripping. You ever take a piece of tape off the skin and you just see where that tape was, kind of like an outline of like red or swelling or maybe some haziness or flakiness. And what you did there is you stripped the epidermal cells off of each other. We call that skin stripping. And that happens because the bond between that tape and the skin is actually stronger than the bond between the superficial layers of the skin. And so that challenges you just to be mindful of, you know, what it is you're trying to accomplish with tape, right? If you're trying to just keep the eyelids closed, then paper tape is the best thing. If you're trying to secure a life-saving device like an endotracheal tube, then 
you accept that risk of skin stripping. You use a strong backing like silk tape or cloth tape. But now let me, let me on that real mm -hmm. quick. So one thing that I tend to do, and I'm wondering if you think there's any backing to this, is uh, whatever, usually I use tegaderms on the eyes, but I'll unstick them first. In other words, I'll stick them to the blanket a few times first so that there's not as much adhesive left and then put them on the eyes. Do you think that helps or am I just kidding myself? I've heard about that, like epithelializing the tape. So, and, and I've heard about that. I, don't, I haven't seen any data on it, but conceptually it makes sense. And, and what you're basically doing is kind of decreasing the bond strength that that tegaderm can then form with the eyes. And you're yeah. probably doing that because you think that they're, and you feel that in your practice, it's valuable for you to be able to see that the eyelids are closed, right? Yeah. And so um, I do think if you're going to use a strong backing tape like a tegaderm, then that's probably a best practice approach to it. Right. Whereas I've adopted that even for prone cases, I just use paper tape and I close the eyelids and I almost never use a tegaderm over the eyes. But if you are, I think that that's a good approach. I haven't seen any uh, data looking at that, but I can imagine that it does help. Um, and you don't really care about that decrease in bond strength. You actually want that. Right. So in that case, I think it's a good idea. Great. I feel and, very bad. Thank you. <laughs> of course. So like if you have a piece of tape and you want to remove it and try to reduce the skin uh, risk of skin injury, uh, probably the best practice is to find an edge of the tape and start to peel it. And what you don't want to do is peel that tape from skin at like a 90 degree or perpendicular angle. When you do that, you're more likely to put tension on the skin and tear it or strip it. And so the best way to remove it is to kind of fold that tape on itself, kind of like 180 degrees and slowly peel it back. And we always have uh, we don't always have adhesive removal, but we always have lubricating jelly. So you can just rub the tape with jelly or put some on uh, your finger. And as you peel back that tape, just kind of keep it at that leading edge and uh, and use that lubrication to help break down that bond before you peel the tape off. So that's something that we can do if we find there's a patient we're worried about that has sensitive skin and we just want to be careful about injury. The second most common uh, type of skin injury we interact with are patients that say they have allergies to tape. And what they're really telling you is that when they have tape put on them, they develop a dermatitis. And your job is to kind of know, is it an allergy to tape, which would actually be like an allergic reaction, or is it a non-allergic response? And most of the time, that's just a chemical irritant. So we'll talk a little bit about that because before this presentation, I didn't really know how to counsel patients, I think what we typically do is we maybe ask them a question or two, and then we say, okay, well, we'll be as gentle as possible. And we'll just, you know, for some things we really have to use the tape. So I'm sorry, but there's no alternative. And, and that's fine. And that's in reality what we do, but there's a little bit more that you can get from them and reassure them and also educate them. Uh, and I think that'll make your, your daily practice a little bit uh, stronger. And so you know, if you see somebody that has an adhesive allergy on their chart, I think the most important thing to do is, is to appreciate that true allergies to tape are vanishingly rare. And that if you look in the medical literature for kind of case reports on this, you'll see less than a dozen confirmed cases of tape allergy. And most of the time this occurred when tape contained latex or rubber products. And like we talked about with the FDA, all this tape undergoes hypoallergenic testing. So the chances that there's an allergy, really, really, really low. So what does an actual allergy to tape look like? Well, you kind of have a good sense of that. You would see an erythematous or vesicular pyritic lesion. 
uh, it tends to be extremely specific to one type of tape uh, and only one type of tape. And it's consistently reproducible uh, whenever they have an exposure to that tape. So it doesn't matter if it touched their skin for five minutes or a day, they will develop this dermatitis to that tape. And this is mediated by delayed type hypersensitivity uh, reactions by lymphocytes. And really the best way to avoid this is to avoid that specific type of tape. But what you'll see most commonly, and which is about 100 times more common than a true allergic reaction, is a non-allergic dermatitis, which is basically an irritation from the tape itself. And so there was a study done in the Journal of Dermatitis in 2015 where some dermatologists looked at their medical record database. They looked at 3 million records, and they found that a tape allergy is reported in about 0.37% of their patients. So about 1 in, a, in 270 patients report a tape allergy. But again, it's not really an allergy. It's 100 times more likely just to be what we call a non-allergic dermatitis. And so what this looks like is that you'll see a, a well-demarcated area of erythema and edema that is strictly maintained within the bounds of that tape. And it will happen to any type of tape. And it's not consistently reproducible. It's kind of a function of how long that tape stays in the skin. And the mechanism behind this is that sweat, which can be released when you occlude the skin, it contains pro-inflammatory cytokines that can activate inflammation pathways. And so what you're seeing is that you're seeing an inflammatory response, but it's not an allergic response. And so... If tape is on skin for a long period of time, that skin will sweat and that sweat will accumulate between the skin and the tape and cause an inflammatory response. So when you take that tape off, you'll see what looks like an allergic reaction, but it's completely bound by where that tape was. And so that lets you know and helps you educate patients that, you know, what you have, it's, it's actually just a contact dermatitis and it happens to everybody the longer that tape is left on the skin. And the way that you kind of treat this is, be mindful of, just like with skin injury, what you're using tape for and limit the total occlusion time uh, with that tape for just as much as you need. And try to avoid reapplying tapes to areas that have been previously taped over or injured. And then using silicone-based uh, adhesive also reduces the risk. Of this. But like we talked about uh, earlier, it's not super commonly used yet in uh, medicine. Great. So sounds like reassuring news on the kind of allergy front that probably most people who think they're allergic to tape aren't. It's just that they may have either maybe one specific kind of tape that's not good for them, or it may just be that they get a dermatitis from as many people would, or at least a larger number of people would from having a prolonged exposure to tape, as you said, the sweat kind of building up. So if it's for a short term period in the OR, that's probably better than days in the ICU. Correct. Okay. Correct. And, And there are a whole group of, uh, practitioners that focus on wound care and some of the things that they can do to try to prevent this long-term. If you look at a really good, uh, you know, really good care for pick lines, right? These, these patients, they're very strict about their care when it comes to adhesives. They'll use uh, specialized products to coat the skin before an adhesive is placed. And that kind of like what you were talking about with the Tegaderm, it provides an extra layer of barrier to protect the skin when it's time to be removed. And so there are products you can use, not that we would use in the OR, but for long-term adhesive care that can reduce some of these complications. 
Right. The other thing is, I imagine that tape can get pretty dirty, right? I mean, both because it's stuck to your skin and it's kind of accumulating stuff, but then also because we don't, we don't kind of dedicate one roll of tape per patient, right? We use a roll of tape till it's done. That roll of tape is potentially getting dirty. What do we know about infection risk with tape? So I love thinking about this because it, it, I can't believe that we do this and we just don't even really think about it. But there's a really good quote by 3M which kind of outlines this and it's a good framework to think about how big of a problem this potentially could be. But they say that you know adhesive tape is a unique piece of medical equipment. It's never washed or sterilized after we open it. And a roll of tape can be used for many individuals. It's typically manipulated without using gloves. And it's applied in close, con close contact with intravascular catheters and endotracheal tubes. And I think we all have been in this situation. We want a piece of tape to reinforce something. We may or may not have gloves on. may or may not have blood on the tape. I mean, it gets messy. And so the question is, can tape get dirty and can dirty tape cause infection? And so there, we do have some data in the literature about this. It's not perfect, but a lot of this, I think, kind of makes sense based off of what uh, you know, we, we know about infection risk in general. So the first people to really look at this um, was a group of uh, intensivists at UPMC in the 70s. And they did a study in the ICU where they took uh, 24 rolls of tape. And they opened them up and they cultured both sides of the tape where the tape, you know, would lie flat and then the outer rim of the tape. So three areas. And then in the uh, kind of inner paper ring of the tape, they wrote a number, one through 24. And they put a roll of tape in each room and then a couple rolls in uh, the cabinets. And they um, followed these tapes on days one, five, and seven, and they just cultured them and looked for bacterial counts and speciations. And what they found is that by day seven, 96% of these tape rolls were contaminated. And many of the organisms that were uh, recovered were things that you would not want to be spreading to other patients like staph aureus or pseudomonas or enterobacter and they also concluded that the flat surface of tape where it kind of sits on the table that 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 surface tended to be more contaminated than the outer rim and so they were not able to directly say oh this tape caused an infection but they were able to say tape gets dirty and in theory the things that gets dirty with could cause uh, you know virulent infections and the University of Toronto did a similar study uh, about a couple decades later um, where they just randomly sampled tape rolls in the hospital they went um, to a single hospital they went in the ICU the ED the ORs they, wherever they could find tape they took it and they cultured it and they found that 74% of the tape had uh, was colonized by pathogenic bacteria and interestingly, they found that if you were to dis, uh, discard like one revolution of the tape, like a couple inches, that only 5% of the specimens had significant growth afterwards. So this kind of concluded that one, adhesive tape is a potential source of pathogenic bacteria, but that if you discard the outer layer, it could help reduce potential infection risk. So that's kind of the data on dirty tape. So that's so interesting. And I've not never heard that, but I think that's a really important message for people is like basically no downside to that, right? Discard a, a couple, uh, you know, go around a couple of times, throw that out and you're not going to hurt anything, not wasting that much. And you may be making a difference and helping. Of course, it doesn't help with that side that's laying down, right? Like you mentioned from the past study, 
if that part is contaminated, but it's still only a small portion. Is there, do you, are you aware? I mean, the other option and, you know, would be obviously to dedicate a roll of tape for each patient, just like we dedicate a vial of medicine for each patient. We don't reuse vials. Um, I'm imagining that institutions aren't that excited about that because obviously that would raise costs quite a lot. So, um, and and that's a really good question. And I, and I, this is a good segue into, you know, there, we obviously can tell tape gets dirty, but can dirty tape cause infections? And there are some case reports in the literature specifically in children's hospitals in Texas and in Michigan, where uh, infections to NICU babies and teenagers with leukemia were directly traced to dirty tape. And so in the case of NICU babies, they found that uh, in transport, tape was used to fasten umbilical catheters, and they actually did a DNA sequence and found that the infection that was caused in the NICU babies was the same species of isolate of aspergillus that was found on that dirty tape. And what this has led to is just kind of like these internal QI projects at these institutions. And one of the children's hospitals in Michigan had a bunch of what I thought were really nice recommendations that they basically instituted as new policy. And what they have done is that all tape now becomes like single patient use. So when you come into the hospital, you get several rolls of tape assigned to you and they either stay in that room or they stay in a biohazard bag and they just follow you throughout the hospital. And they no longer store tape in your pockets or stethoscopes. And to be honest with you, what people don't appreciate, it is a little bit more expensive, but you can buy tape that's not like a full roll of tape. So let's say, and I don't know this information, but like if you were to stretch out a whole roll of tape, let's say it's like 50 feet of tape, you can buy rolls of tape that are like 10 feet. And so it's not as expensive as a full roll of tape and you're not going to waste it as much. And so I do think it's probably best practice to do that, to, um, you know, have individual kind of serving rolls of tape and use that for patients. But in the environment we work in, and I'm pretty sure it's standard across most hospitals, we don't do that. So some of the things you can do and which I've started to do is instead of keeping my rolls of tape on the main section of my anesthesia workstation, I actually put it on top of the machine. And then when I handle that tape, I make sure that I either have clean hands or clean gloves. And if I have any concern that the tape is dirty, I discard one revolution of the tape. And so that's my way of trying to be mindful about it. But if there's ever any question, like let's say you had a patient with some weird multi-drug resistant bacteria and I use that tape, I just throw it away. I just throw it away because it's overall the tape costs about a dollar or two and um, why work. Uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah, you know, it's so interesting. I mean, this is such an unscientific comment to make, but I feel like how does the bacteria get off the tape, right? I mean, isn't it so sticky? <laughs> <laughs> I feel like if it got on there, how would it get off? Yeah, exactly. And, you know, for maybe for securing an endotracheal tube, it is a little gross, but I don't really, maybe it's not going to cause, you know, an infection. But, um, you know, for IVs, some of these lines that we place, we reinforce it with uh, with tape and that tape is dirty. And we probably shouldn't be doing that. So if you don't, and the nice thing about single, like the Tegaderms, that they're all kind of individually wrapped. So if I'm ever using a piece of plastic tape and it's like kind of in a really critical device uh, area and I'm worried about it, I may just use sterile tape. And in that case, Tegaderm is really easily accessible and I can just apply that over it, feel better about it. But you're right. Yeah. I mean, that seems right to me that, you know, that is, I don't think people are going to, it's hard for me to imagine people making individually sterilely wrapped 
rolls of tape for every patient, though maybe that's the right answer. I, I, but we already have it in a way, right? With tegaderms, as you said, we have individual sterilized adhesive devices. So putting those over IVs, putting them over central lines, which is, is what we do, right? The initial dressing. But you're saying maybe not reinforcing the edges with what could be dirty tape. That might be a better practice. Yeah. And so, you know, I, and this next section is a good segue into kind of what's the evidence behind taping our tubes and our IVs, but um, we now have really good IV tegaderms and those are always sterile when you open them. So that is a great thing to put in close contact to that IV skin interface. And so a lot of times you're supporting tape, you know, again, maybe dirtier, but you're not actually putting it at the area where it can easily cause an infection. You're just supporting like a, to make a loop with the IV or maybe you're anchoring the IV at multiple places on the patient's body. And so that tape, you know, ideally it's clean, but if it's not as clean, it's less of an infection risk because you are no longer really putting uh, tape so close to that skin uh, interface. So this uh, next section is also the last section for me. It's um, kind of looking at the literature on the best way to tape tubes and uh, IV catheters. And uh, what I like about this section is that everyone tells you my way is the best way. And it may be, but, you know, there, there's some literature out here. So you can always challenge your attendings. Like, yeah, okay, let's do a study on it, you know, and compare it to what we, we do have out there. Uh, and so we'll start with, uh, actually, the literature on the securing IVs, because it's less exciting these days. So it used to be the case that uh, clinicians would use what we call chevrons to secure IVs to skin. And if you don't really know what a chevron is, just some, it's basically a small piece of tape that you would apply under like the uh, flanges of an IV catheter and then um, kind of flip them over on top of it. Uh, of the IV and just secure it to the skin. It was just a way to anchor the IV directly to the skin with a piece of tape. And there used to be studies, there were several studies that looked at like, okay, if I add one chevron, or two chevrons, will that help reduce the risk of IV dislodgement? And, you know, the, the literature in the 90s showed that if you used multiple chevrons and then you reinforced uh, the adhesive with some mastosol and then covered it, that that was a good way to prevent IV dislodgement. But like I mentioned, the fastest segment of medical adhesives um, are adhesives used to secure IVs. So the IV tegaderms that we use now outperform any chevron technique that we used to do in the past. So just secure your IV uh, to the skin using one of these IV tegaderms and look at the package to tell you the best way to secure it because we all have different uh, ways of applying it, but there really is a correct way to do that. And uh, the other point to, to make with these IV addressing is that even though we don't really do chevrons anymore, there are still some patients that may benefit from a chevron before you put on that tegaderm. And so uh, NICU babies or small babies where we use 24 gauge catheters, those things are always flimsy and uh, they have a lot of subcutaneous tissue. So those things come out all the time. So you'll still see some pediatric anesthesiologists using chevrons to secure these 24 gauge IVs before putting on uh, the IV tegaderm. Uh, and so there's really don't have to have too much more discussion about securing IVs because of uh, new technology in that regard. Although I do have one question there, Phil, you know, I feel like the way you're supposed to put on these IV securing tegaderms is kind of, you know, they have that little notch where the, where mm. you put it so that, that the, um, the catheter itself kind of comes out that notch. 
but you're not really covering the whole thing then with the tegaderm. I'm always tempted to cover the entire IV catheter uh, with the tegaderm so that it's all kind of underneath that that teggy, and then the IV itself is kind of coming out from under it. And that seems to me like it would be a better idea than then using tape to put over the, right? Because the way it's meant to be, you end up with tape a lot closer to the actual entry site. Is there any thought on whether you should kind of, you know, have have the tegaderm itself, which is sterile, covering the entire site? Um, so I think that, and every institution may have a different version of these IV tegaderms, but um, the main thing is that we have these clear windows that you obviously want to be able to see where that catheter interacts with the skin. But then the actual contraption, like you said, it tends to be kind of like a oval or rectangular shaped uh, tegaderm that has a little notch in the middle. And where that notch goes, I've seen so much variation with it, but I typically like to have that notch go right at the interface of where that IV catheter lower locks with IV tubing and secure at that point. And then there are usually reinforcing strips of tape on the tegaderm that you can use to secure it in a variety of ways. Either you can slide it under to where that notch is to kind of secure it there. Some people like to secure it over the where the IV catheter and the IV tubing meet and kind of do it that way. Uh, and I've seen a lot of variation with it. Not exactly sure the best place to put the reinforcing strip, but certainly uh, you should be putting that notch right where uh, the interface of that catheter and where it connects to IV tubing. Yeah. Okay, great. So what about taping ET tubes? So um, endotracheal tubes, uh, they're actually a group of physicians at a Case Western in the, in the late 90s that just dedicated a lot of their time to taping IVs and endotracheal tubes, and they made it into a couple ASA presentations. Uh, so there, there's some literature here published in the Canadian Journal of Anesthesia uh, during this time. And in their one study, they compared seven different taping methods using five different tapes uh, on mannequins. And they secured these tubes, and then they applied different dislodging forces to the endotracheal tube. And they tried to see, okay, well, uh, with which tape and which taping techniques did you need the most force to dislodge? And what they found is regardless of the taping technique, that tape that had stronger backing formed a stronger bond and was harder to dislodge. And this makes a lot of sense based off of what we talked about so far. So in their study, they said plastic tape kind of formed the weakest bond and was the easiest to dislodge and silk tape formed a stronger bond. And that's entirely based off of the fact that the backing is stronger with silk tape. But the actual taping technique that they used that they found to be the strongest, it required four pieces of tape. And the first piece of tape went across the maxilla over uh, the, in between the lip, the lip and the nose and wrapped around the tube at the corner of the mouth twice and then went over the lip and then alongside the maxillary. And then they did a second strip on the mandible, wrapped it along the mandible, met the endotracheal tube at the corner of the mouth, wrapped it around the tube twice, under the lip, and then across the mandible on the other side. And then they used two reinforcing strips of tape. One reinforcing strip on the top that they just placed over the whole uh, first piece of tape, and then uh, another reinforcing strip on the bottom that went over. So four pieces of tape. And they found that this was the strongest taping technique to prevent dislodgement. Hmm. And what I, what I will say is what, what we see in pediatric anesthesia 
is that we'll take a piece of uh, one inch silk tape and we'll kind of rip it in half longitudinally. And then we'll wedge that, uh, that kind of corner piece against the corner of the mouth and then we'll wrap it around the tube. And they studied this technique as one of their techniques. And they found that if you break tape along its longitudinal axis, you actually do compromise uh, the integrity of the tape and you uh, make it more likely to be dislodged at a given kind of tug pressure. But in reality, that taping technique of breaking it and then wrapping it around like we do on uh, most pediatric centers was the second strongest way to tape an endotracheal tube. And so for, for our patients, it's still a reasonable approach to, to taping uh, an endotracheal tube. That's awesome. Yeah, I uh, I see a lot of you guys, the pediatric folks doing that. And some of our residents will do it in adults because they've learned it from you guys. And I think it's a nice technique. The problem with the full inch, the full one inch uh, silk tape we often use is that it doesn't really fit between most people's uh, upper lip and nose. So you end up either taping on the lip or on the nose, or you have to kind of fold the tape or something. I'll tell you what I miss when I was a resident and they may still have this at UCSF. We had this pink tape and it was awesome. It was about a half inch, maybe a quarter inch. It was very thin. So you didn't have to tear it. And it was, I don't know what it was made of. It was not silk. It was not paper. It was almost, um, almost like something a little spongy. I'm not sure, but it was great it was the we've used it for every single et tube to tape and it was great and i've not, haven't seen it since but it's really great tape yeah i think you're referring to high tape uh hy kind of dash tape and that's known as the pink tape that's what we call it at pit so yeah. uh high tape and and that actually is not owned by 3m it's like a mom and pop small business i mean and they make an excellent product and their selling point it obviously uses an acrylate adhesive but they also kind of sprinkle on their zinc oxide and the zinc oxide is apparently helpful for wound healing. And so that's kind of like how they've been able to maintain themselves in kind of the wound care, uh, you know, sub section of the medical adhesive industry. Uh, so high tape is great. It's actually made of a plastic and it's waterproof. It's not very breathable, but it's waterproof and it forms a really strong bond. It's kind of equivalent in terms of bond strength as silk tape. And, um, yeah, high tape is great. What you see it used a lot for these days, uh, kind of securing a chest tube uh, to suction. So you'll see at that interface where the chest tube kind of meets suction, they'll wrap it in a waterproof tape like uh, pink tape or high tape. Uh, and that's uh, really helpful. They actually, in this study, uh, they used high tape uh, as kind of part of uh, their uh, different types of tape. And it performed at the same level uh, as silk tape. That's awesome, Phil. All these years, I've been wondering what that was, and now you've told me. That's great. High tape. <laughs> I love it. We'll got to see if we can get some here. Yeah, yeah. But that's it. So that's kind of what I do. I've been giving this lecture to fellows when they are with us during the fellowship, and then I try to talk about it um, intraoperatively when there's some time with residents. And I think it's just a fun topic. Um, probably the only time we'll ever really uh, dedicate to, to speaking about it. Um, but yeah, that's it. And I hope you guys enjoyed it. That's awesome. Thanks so much, Phil. And I think really interesting, some very practical stuff on techniques to think about and what to think about in terms of infection risk for patients, but also, you know, what you said up front, which is, you know, I would say to all the listeners, especially trainees, but really anybody, if you find yourself interested in something or asking a question about something, it could be, you know, tape, it could be uh, the uh, type of endotracheal tubes we use, it could be anything, right? It could be the IV catheters. 
you know, you want to dive, take a deep dive and think about it, which you clearly have done here, Phil. You can really um, learn a lot and teach a lot from it. And uh, who knows, maybe you'll find a way to make patients safer. So I uh, really appreciate it. Let's turn to the part of our show where we make random recommendations. You have something you would recommend the audience check out? Um, <clears throat> okay, so I think when you're a trainee, you're just so focused on becoming a trainee or like getting through it and being and just learning the material. And then when you graduate, uh, <laughs> your income goes up so, so much. And uh, you start to realize that there's a lot of money going in and out. And so as a new attending, I couldn't help it, but I had a baby right away and I moved to a new city. And so my expenses just went up dramatically. And um, I wish I would have started learning more about the white coat investors, some of these personal finance uh, books. And, um, but I started learning. And I'll tell you what, my favorite book when it comes to personal finance that has helped kind of frame things is called Simple Path to Wealth by J.L. Collins. And he just really reassures that if you're a high income earner, like uh, all of us um, listening are, um, you don't have to do too much to retire with really whatever income that you want. And so it takes a lot of the stress off when you're thinking about how much do I need to budget? How much do I really need to map out every dollar? And it really kind of depends on what your needs are now. But if you just do some really simple things like maximize your employer-based uh, retirement contributions and your individual retirement accounts, uh, most of us will just be able to retire at a reasonable age with more than enough money. So I really like that book. And I think for a lot of people, it'll start them down this rabbit hole of understanding uh, personal finance. Nice. That's awesome. Um, I am going to recommend a little atypical, um, but I'm going to recommend... Um, a uh, technique uh, for helping kids learn money management. So we have uh, three kids and the older two are 11 and nine. The youngest is four, so she's not quite yet, there yet. But um, two two tips that I have, people have, I did not invent these. People recommended these to us, but I found them really useful. One is if your kids go to a school where you can put money uh, kind of on an account for them to buy food themselves at the cafeteria, what we've done is we've said most of the time they they need to pack and take their own lunches. But you know, we, we said for a while, you can buy lunch, you know, once a week. So we'll give you money. And what we've realized is this is an opportunity to um, actually help them realize how to kind of manage money. So instead of just saying buy lunch once a week, and when your account runs out, we'll put more on there. We kind of tried to calculate my wife and I how much about they need for half of a year if they're going to buy lunch once a week. And then we told them you can have this much this lump sum, and you manage it. So if you want to buy, you know, a lot of stuff one week, go ahead. But then you might have to skip the next week or just buy something small the next week, right? And you're gonna have to pay attention to how much is left and think about your usage of it. So it's been really interesting. One of my daughters is super conservative and she's like hardly getting anything and then she'll save it all up to the end. And the other one is like almost through it already in the first few weeks because she can't, <laughs> can't hold herself back. But they'll learn, right? They'll learn from it. So it's kind of fun for them and a way for them to learn. And then the other is rather than just giving them allowance, we, uh, someone recommended this to us years ago, but we give them their allowance in three parts. So each month they get a certain allowance and we divide it between a spend, a save and a give kind of bucket. And they, um, obviously the spend one is for them and they can spend on whatever they want. The save one is to save for college, presumably. And the give one, it, they save that money up. And then, um, when, you know, occasionally they look through different charity options and pick one to give the money away to. So it's a really neat way to kind of teach um, different approaches to money and saving um, through the allowance process. So anyway, recommend checking out both those things with your kids if you are interested. All right, Phil, this has been great. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Yeah, thank you. Take care. 
All right. Hopefully you got as much out of that as I did. That was really fantastic. Let us know what you thought. Go to the website, akrak.com, where you can leave a comment. Others can learn from what you have to say. If you are a fan of the show, you can follow us. We're on Twitter. We are on Facebook. We are on Reddit. And we are on Instagram. I'm at Jay Wolpaw on Twitter, and we're at Akrak Podcast. And you can find us on all those other platforms as well. If you are a fan of the show, please consider going to Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts and leaving a comment and a rating. It really helps others find the show. If you'd like to support the making of the show, please consider going to patreon.com slash ACRAC. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash A-C-C-R-A-C, where you can become a patron of the show. Even if it's just a dollar or two that you pledge, it makes a big difference and we really appreciate it. You can also make donations anytime by going to paypal.me slash ACRAC. Or looking up Jay Walpaw on Venmo. Thank you so much to those who have already made donations and become patrons. We really appreciate it. Thanks, as always, to our fantastic ACRAC crew. Dr. Brian Park is our tech lead. Sonia Amanat and Chris Reese are our social media managers. Dr. April Liu and Edison Jang are our production assistants. Thank you so much for all that you do. Our original ACRAC music is by Dr. Dennis Kuo. You can check out his website at studymusicproject.com. All right, that is it for today. For the ACRAC Podcast, I'm Jed Wolpaw. Thanks for listening. Remember, what you're doing out there every day is really important and valued. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success.